Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today we are going to be talking about Aragorn, sort of. We're going to be talking about the line of succession. Why, when you watch the movies, is Aragorn not on the throne? What are the situations that led to there being a steward of Gondor? What's up with the line of kings? Where does it break? Can somebody explain this to me? If you're somebody who just watches the movies, it really doesn't make sense at all and that's not to knock Peter Jackson it's a really complicated situation and you'd have to have more than a 12 hour long film to try and explain how everything unfolded that led to why Aragorn is not on the throne so without further ado let's jump right into it so basically the questions I want to answer here is why is Aragorn not on the throne what is the situation why wouldn't the steward of Gondor not particularly want Aragorn to be on the throne? What happened to the last king of Gondor? Those are the questions I, I want to answer here because I feel like this is a good episode to do for the common person who is a fan of Lord of the Rings via the movies, you know, because it's a, it's a complicated subject, but I believe answering these questions is crucial because it adds so much depth and color to the story. And it almost sounds like something that could unfold in human history. So I'm going to start this off with The Flight of the Faithful, okay? This could be, in a sense, a sequel to my Fall of Numenor podcast. The Faithful get on the boats, if you recall. Sauron had irredeemably corrupted the people of Numenor to the point where Iluvatar went to go destroy it. The whole island was drowned, and the the faithful, the the ones who were the Numenorians who were not wicked, they managed to escape. And a wind coming in from the west had pushed them away from the catastrophic destruction and brought them into the direction of Middle-earth. So the faithful are really divided into two groups centered around Elendil and his sons, Isildur and Anarion. Now it says that the groups of faithful on these different ships were separated by a great storm, so it pushed them off into different directions. Elendil, who is again the father of Isildur and Anarion, Elendil, the leader of the faithful, he is pushed off into the direction of the north, Eregion, that area, and then you have Isildur and his brother Anarion, and they are pushed into the direction of what eventually becomes Gondor in the south. So Isildur and Anarion, they find themselves in this foreign land that they are somewhat familiar with because Numenor does have a lot of colonies on the coast, so they have lore, you know, to explain to them where they have arrived at. Now, Elendil, their father, he arrives in the north, and he establishes the kingdom of Arnor. And Arnor means land of the king. And Isildur and Anarion, like I said, they land in the south, and they establish a land called Land of Stone, Gondor. And they call it Land of Stone, obviously, because Gondor is a very mountainous region. You have the White Mountains there. If you've watched the movies, you're familiar with the, the you know, the scene where they light the beacons and the fire is going over that mountain range. Those are, those are the White Mountains. So that's why it's called Land of Stone, Gondor. Now, Isildur and Anarion set up Gondor and they 
establish themselves as co-rulers, right? Isildur is the older brother, Anarion is the younger brother. Isildur sets up his throne in uh, Minas Ithil, which eventually becomes Minas Morgul. And Anarion establishes himself in what eventually becomes Minas Tirith, right? But that's that's on the other side. And then in the middle, they establish a capital city where they have a joint throne room together at Osgiliath. Now, by the time the War of the Ring comes around and you're watching the movies, Osgiliath is basically just ruins. But Osgiliath actually used to be the capital. It sat on the river there, and it was a crown jewel of the kingdom of Gondor in its heyday. Now, going up to Arnor, the land of the king, you have Elendil, who is ruling there. And he sets up his capital at a place called Anumanas. So, you have the two kingdoms that are have basically been established separately. And Isildur, Anarion, ruling in the south, Elendil, ruling in the north. However, Isildur and Anarion submit to their father as the high king of both kingdoms. So they're essentially joint ruling Gondor. However, they submit to their father as princes under him. This situation is working out for a good amount of time. You remember the the men of Numenor live a very long time, so a good amount of years go past until all of a sudden Sauron comes forth from Mordor again, and he attacks Gondor. He actually attacks Minas Ithil, and the city falls. And that's, that's, you remember, that's where Isildur established his house, Minas Ithil, which eventually becomes Minas Morgul. And that city sat on the border, basically, of Gondor and Mordor. So that it's only natural that Sauron would attack there first. So Isildur manages to escape the city of Minas Ithil with his family. The city falls, Sauron takes it, and Isildur flees to the north, right? To to plead with his father to come and save Gondor from Sauron, who is newly emerged. And he leaves Anarion in the south to basically defend the rest of Gondor from this onslaught of Mordor. Something that Sauron actually does during this time is he burns the white tree at Minas Ithil, which Isildur had planted from the sapling that he had taken from the tree at Numenor. So once again, we have another desecration of one of the trees of the men of the west taking place. Isildur flees to the north. He arrives at Anumanas begs his father for help, and Elendil agrees to come and save his southern domain, which is ruled by his sons. And he gets together with Gilgalad of the elves. If you've watched the Rings of Power, this is the elven king who, you know, puts his arm up in episode one and goes, To Valinor! That guy. So he gets together with him, and they form an alliance. And this is the last alliance of men and elves. And they form up together and march east. And they actually go and meet uh, Elrond at Rivendell, who joins with them. They gather a massive force, right? All of the forces of the west and the north 
coalescing together. Dwarves were even with them. Uh, other elven nations that weren't of the Noldor join up with them. They cross the Misty Mountains and they approach Mordor. And the Battle of Daggerlad takes place and that's what actually creates the Dead Marshes because Legolas's grandfather, Orifer, he actually breaks with the rest of the Alliance because he did not want to take orders from Gilgalad, right? I think it's, it's interesting. I think when most people who are just casual fans, when they think of the elves, they think of a very homogenous group of people who are all uniform in their way of thinking but they are not that way at all actually there are there is interconflict going on between different groups of elves and Legolas's grandfather who was king of the woodland realm he did not want to you know listen to the commands of this Noldoran ruler who thought he was better than the rest of the elves according to him he actually broke with the line attacked first took heavy losses he actually ends up being killed and that's what creates the dead marshes you know for thousands of years after and at great loss the last alliance you know they they recover from these heavy losses and they ended up beating Sauron's forces at the battle of Daggerlad. So now they break into Mordor. They're within the boundaries of Mordor and they are winning. They are gaining ground every day and then the siege of Barad-dûr starts and Anarion Isildur's little brother, who is the co-ruler of Gondor, still at this point. Anarion falls in battle. Elendil's younger son, Anarion, is slain in the siege of Barad-dûr. Even though the allies are winning the war, this is coming at a huge loss. So now, one of Gondor's co-rulers lays dead on the battlefield. But... They're still winning. And Sauron has this epic duel with Elendil and Gilgalad. And I hope this is the climax of the Rings of Power show. And Elendil and Gilgalad throw him down. However, they lose their lives in the process. So basically, both sides fight each other to death. Elendil and Gilgalad, they wear Sauron out to the point where, you know, Sauron, spoiler alert, anybody who cares about the show, Sauron picks up Gilgalad by the neck and just burns him alive. However, him and Elendil, who Elendil also loses his life, are able to drain Sauron of so much energy and injure him so much that he actually is thrown down himself. And then Isildur actually comes up and finishes the job, cuts the ring from Sauron's hand. Now, some interesting things happen here. So, okay, everybody knows Isildur took the ring. He keeps it for himself. But there's a lot of things that casual fans don't know that happens after this that, that actually takes place. So The Unfinished Tales actually has a great section, which I used for this podcast. It's called The Disaster at Gladden Fields. And it's a great place to start if you really want to get into this section of time in the story. Isildur, you know, takes time to help heal the southern kingdom of all the wounds that Sauron has inflicted on it after winning the War of the Last Alliance. He replants the seedling at Minas Arnor, which eventually becomes uh, Minas Tirith, the seedling of the tree that Sauron destroyed that he had planted at Minas Ithil. And he leaves charge. Something, something interesting here that is key to the story and key to understanding the line of kings and why Aragorn is not on the throne at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. So Isildur leaves charge 
of the southern kingdom to Menildil, who is Anarion's oldest son. So he leaves charge of the southern kingdom to his nephew. However, the understanding was always, I'm going to now go sit in my father's seat as the high king of both kingdoms, and you will rule in the south, subject to me. So that was the understanding. However, on his way back to the north, you know, we know the story. This happens in you know the first couple minutes of the Fellowship of the Ring movie. He is ambushed the, at Gladden Fields uh, on his way back to the north to claim his father's seat as high king. And he and his three sons are slain his three oldest sons. And it's a great story. It's heart-wrenching. You should go read it in the Unfinished Tales if you have not already. What happens is a messenger makes it back to Rivendell and tells everyone there what happened. They, they've been attacked. People arrive later and they they figure out what happened. They know Isildur has been killed. They know his sons are killed. So what happens is his youngest son, who is a child at this point, his youngest son, Valendil, so Isildur's son, is claimed the king of the north. However, Valendil, he's a child. He is not strong enough to rule one kingdom, let alone rule two. So what happens is at this point, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Arnor and Gondor, really separate into two separate polities because you have a competent Metaldil in the south who has basically stepped into his own right as ruler. And then you have a young child who really isn't making any decisions yet in the north. So this young child can't really lay claim to both kingdoms and tell a guy what to do in the south. So the situation that ends up developing from this is Isildur's heirs end up ruling the northern kingdom. So that's his young son, Valendil, and his descendants. And then Anarion's heirs end up ruling the southern kingdom. So that's Menildil and his descendants. So this is what sets the stage for the rest of time and for why Aragorn is not on the throne in the Lord of the Rings. Because who is Aragorn a descendant of? He is a descendant of Valendil. He is not a descendant of Anarion. And Anarion's descendants are ruling the southern kingdom. All right, now fast forward a lot of years. <laughs> with this political situation taking place. Now again, you have the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, which at this point have been separated for a long time. And I'm not going to, we get to the Angmar Wars now, okay? This is how the Witch King of Angmar earns his moniker, even though he's just one of the Nazgul. I'm not gonna get too into this because I might wanna do another podcast at another time specifically about the Angmar Wars because I love it so much, but it's crucial for understanding the story and the line of kings and the succession and the establishment of the political situation in Gondor as well. That's that's what's interesting about this, right? Is because the Witch King is so much more of an underrated character because he actually is affecting the entire political situation, at least of men in Lord of the Rings over a period of thousands of years. Uh, so we don't give him enough credit as this character that was able, you know, he's not mindless. He's very strong and cunning and was able to decapitate the royal houses of both Arnor and Gondor pretty much himself on behalf of Sauron. So you have Sauron who is 
at this point, still operating on a very low-key basis. His spirit has re-emerged, and he's trying to direct things in Middle-earth to make it easier for him to take over when he reveals himself once again. So on his behalf, him and the Witch King are, are sitting there, and they're trying to figure out how to weaken the free peoples, and they see two strong kingdoms of men, Arnor in the north and Gondor in the south. And they pick Arnor in the north to pick apart because at this point in the story, we are well away from the time where Arnor was at its height of strength. The kingdom has actually been split into three. There is the kingdom of Arthedain, the kingdom of Rudar, and the kingdom of Cardolan. And this is the kingdom of Arnor split into three because you had a king who couldn't pick which son he wanted to be on the throne, so he divided his kingdom into three. And I believe this was the tenth king of Arnor. So you have Valandil, who is the son of Isildur, and then nine kings later... You have a buffoon who decides, I'm going to split my kingdom into three because I can't decide which son to give it to. Clearly, Tolkien did not like this, right? He, he did not appreciate kings who couldn't pick a son to give the throne to. So this guy splits his kingdom again, Arthedain, Rudar, and Cardolan. So Sauron sees this. And he's like, okay, we're going to go after the men of the north because they are in a weaker state. You know, Gondor at this point is strong and united, but the north is divided into three kingdoms and we're going to pick them apart one by one. So he sends the witch king up into the north into the mysterious and creepy realm of Angmar, which basically rests above Arnor. The Witch King gathers all of the evil creatures of the North to him, and he is able to, over a 600-year period, just pick apart the men of the North, this great northern kingdom that was established by Elendil. He slowly destroys them, and it takes a long time, 600 years. So it's it just, you know, it kind of makes you think of the Byzantine Empire a little bit. It's just like a slow border decay for Arnor. This is when you have the fortress of Amansul. Do you remember Frodo gets stabbed on a place called Weathertop? Well, Weathertop used to be a great fortress of the men of the north called Amansul. And the Witch King raises it to the ground. Kings who were Aragorn's direct ancestors are slain on the battlefield. The Downs, you know, the Barrow Downs that we know if, if you've read The Lord of the Rings, you know, Frodo, Sam, Pippin, Merry, they get stuck in the Barrow Downs. This was an ancient burial ground of the kings of Arnor. And it's at this time that the Witch King comes through and desecrates it and sends in a bunch of evil spirits to occupy the dead bodies of the kings in those grounds graves. And it is at this point that one of the last kings of Arnor comes into the story. It is King Arafant, right? You're starting to recognize the Ara, right? This is Aragorn's ancestor. King Arafant enters the story. And it's also at this time that Gondor and Arnor start to have relations again. They reach out to each other because Arafant knows that his kingdom is on its last leg. He knows that if he doesn't seek help from Gondor, Arnor will fall, right? It's, it's, 
it's already technically fallen. There's only uh, there's only small chunks of it left. So King Arafant, Aragorn's ancestor, he reaches out to Gondor to establish a relationship again with the his his kindred, right? Because they're long lost cousins essentially. And he weds his son Arvadui. So there is King Arafant of Arnor and his son Arvadui. He weds his son to the princess of Gondor, the the king's daughter Firiel. And Arvadui and Firiel, so you have the prince of Arnor marrying a princess of Gondor. I should also mention there is this seer you can call him a, a seer or a prophet whose name is Malbeth, Malbeth the seer, and he's basically a servant and advisor to King Arafant. And Malbeth basically says to him, hey, I want you, you're going to name your son Arvadui, which means last king. So he's either going to be the last king of an ununited kingdom, or he is going to be the last king of a kingdom, period. So this prophet says to Arafant, your son will either reunite the kingdom of Arnor and Gondor, or he'll die, and there will no longer be a kingdom in the north. And Arvadui means last king. So you have Arafant, King Arafant in the north, his son marries a princess in Gondor, Firiel, Arvadui are a couple, and... You know, all this happens. The Angmar Wars are still taking place. King Arafant dies, and this character Arvadui, who is married to a Gondorian princess, becomes king in the north. Now, I want to just take a second and read Malbeth the Seer's two prophecies, okay? Just because I think they're interesting. So, the prophecy over Arvadui, this character is this is Malbeth the seer speaking to King Arafant. It says Arvadui you shall call him, for he will be the last in Arthedain. Though a choice will come to the Dunedain, if they take the one that seems less hopeful, then your son will change his name and become king of a great realm. If not, then much sorrow and many lives of men shall pass until the Dunedain arise and are united again. So this choice that this prophet is referencing uh, will come up in a second. But before I, I get into that, I want to read the other prophecy of Malbeth the seer, which comes up if you listen to my other podcast on the dead men of Dunharrow. Over the land there lies a long shadow, westward reaching wings of darkness. The tower trembles to the tombs of kings doom approaches. The dead awaken. For the hour is come for the oathbreakers at the stone of Eric, they shall stand again and hear there a horn in the hills ringing. Whose shall the horn be? Who shall call them from the gray twilight, the forgotten people, the heir of him to whom the oath they swore from the north? He shall come need shall drive him. He shall pass the door to the paths of the dead. So I don't know if Malbeth had any idea of who he was prophesying this over or what the situation was going to be. But this is a vision that he had of Aragorn in the future. So it's an interesting point there. This guy, Malbeth, is a crucial character in this story about the lines of kings. So King Andahir, which is the 
king of Gondor at this time. King Andahir was the king of Gondor who wedded his daughter Firiel to Arvadui from the north. He dies in battle against the men of the east. He dies in battle with no heir. So it is Arvadui who decides he's going to claim the southern kingdom of Gondor and rule as joint ruler of both kingdoms, like it was supposed to be. So he claims the throne via the legality of, one, his wife, because he's basically saying that the throne should go to his wife, Firiel, and therefore to him. And he claims this legality because Numenorean kings would oftentimes, if they did not have a male heir, give the throne to a queen. So he claims this legal right to the throne of Gondor and also claims that his throne is legitimate because he is the heir of Elendil, the the high king of both kingdoms when both kingdoms were first established. Now, the men of the West, the Dúnedain, are presented with a choice at this point. Remember I talked about Maulbeth's prophecy, men being presented with a choice? Will they accept Arvadui as their new ruler? Will they be able to unite the two kingdoms, making themselves stronger and be able to fight off the witch king of Angmar in the north? And sadly, they don't. The Gondorian aristocracy, along with the Stuart, reject Arvadui's claim to the throne. They do not want to be ruled by an heir of Isildur. They want to keep it in-house. They don't want to let this, what they now consider foreign king from the north, come and lord over them. So they give the throne to a gentleman by the name of Ernil, who has a weaker claim to the throne, but is still related to the last king. So unfortunately, Arvadui does not get the throne, and he's at this point out of options. The witch king is on his doorstep, ready to wipe out the remaining men of the kingdom in the north. However, Ernil, the newly crowned king in the south, is he's a good man. He's a noble man. And he believes that it is crucial to try and help the northern kingdom out. And he, he knows that they're still, they're kin. You know, he, he wants to do something to help them in their fight against the witch king. So he promises Arvadui to send reinforcements to go up and help him against the Witch King. However, those reinforcements arrive too late, and Arnor, which at this point is just being referred to as Arthodyne, is completely destroyed. Arvadui survives one of the last battles and flees into the north, where a series of events happening, and he actually ends up drowning in a shipwreck on his way out of the north. So the last king, Arvadui of the north, drowns in a shipwreck. So the Witch King is essentially victorious in the north. He has completely conquered the men of Arnor. There is barely anyone left. The son of Arvadui survives, but there's nothing to rule over. The people of the north have been wiped out. So the Witch King is ruling unchecked. However, the reinforcements from Gondor have arrived, even though, of course, they are late. And they team up with the elves in the north and go to battle against the Witch King to try and be rid of him once and for all. And this force from Gondor is being led by Ernil's son, Irnor. Ernor is this young, strong, very Boromir-like man who has come up to rid the north of all the evil that has flooded it. And he teams up with Elrond and Glorfindel 
and they basically wipe out the forces of the Witch King. They chase him out of Arnor, back into the north, to literally the point where the Witch King is is essentially by himself, maybe with like a personal guard. And Glorfindel and Ernor, the prince from Gondor, come face to face with the Witch King himself. And I want to read this here because this it's I love how this connects again this lore just connects into the grand story so Ernor, glorfindel have just decimated the witch king's forces the witch king is basically left standing by himself and it says this but it is said that when all was lost suddenly the witch king himself appeared black robed and black masked upon a black horse fear fell upon all who beheld him but he singled out the captain of Gondor for the fullness of his hatred, and with a terrible cry he rode upon him. Irnor would have withstood him, but his horse could not endure that onset, and it swerved and bore him far away before he could master it. Then the witch-king laughed, and none that heard it ever forgot the horror of that cry, but Glorfindel rode up then on his white horse and in the midst of his laughter the witch king turned to flight and passed into the shadows for night came down on the battlefield and he was lost and none saw whither he went Ernor now rode back but glorfindel looking into the gathering dark said do not pursue him he will not return to this land far off yet is his doom and not by the hand of man will he fall interesting there huh so Two really important things happen there. One, you have the prophecy of Glorfindel on the Witch King. Not by the hand of man will he fall. And what do we know about that, right? We know that Eowyn kills him. So not by the hand of a man does he fall. And of course, Mary's dagger plays a crucial role in that slaying as well. But another really important thing happens here. The Witch King crushes this young prince's pride. This young prince who has just been victorious in battle over this notorious enemy of men has just embarrassed him in front of all his men because he wanted to challenge the witch king in combat, but his horse was too afraid and ran away with him on it. So the witch king laughed and he remembers that laugh. So anyway, the Witch King disappears, and as the reader, we know that he flees into the south, reestablishes himself in Mordor, and he hides there. Back to Isildur's line. So Arvidui, who, like I said, he escapes into the north, but is drowned in a shipwreck. His son, Arinarth, survives. I remember that the era, you know, you recognize Arinarth, Aragorn. His son, Arinarth, survives. And he becomes the first chieftain of the surviving men of the north. However, he's no king because there's really no population or kingdom left to rule. Just a small band of these men with a Numenorean bloodline who really no longer have a home or a kingdom to go back to because it has been destroyed by the Witch King. So what happens is, is Elrond takes these men in. Elrond takes this royal line into his house and keeps them noble and helps them to grow strong again. They continue to exist and and each chieftain's son is raised in the house of Elrond. And they become strong men who assist Elrond in basically policing the north, right? That's what um, 
the normal people who are living in the north, you remember they, they refer to Aragorn and his band of men as, as rangers, right? Because they police the north from like orcs and trolls and other things that like to occasionally come down from the mountains. So the first chieftain, Arvadui's son, Aranarth, it, it, it gets established. But they never reestablish a kingdom in the north because they've basically been dwindled to nothing and there is nothing to rule over. After this point, there are 15 chieftains, heirs of Isildur. 14 of them are raised in Rivendell. From the death of Arvadui to the birth of Aragorn, 14 of these chieftains are raised as children in Rivendell where they are taken care of by Elrond. And that's where we find the heirs of Isildur by the time the Lord of the Rings comes around. By the time you get to the point of the story where the Fellowship of the Ring starts, that is the political situation for the heirs of Isildur. They are this basically just a line of chieftains ruling over a small group of men that align themselves very closely with Elrond and help him do police work in the north. Pretty sad, huh? Now, let's check in with the heirs of Anarion in Gondor. King Ernil, you remember he was the king who promised to come to the aid of Arvadui in the north. He dies, and his son, Ernor, who has that confrontation which, with, with the Witch King, he comes into power. So now, Ernor is the new king of Gondor. And it says that it describes him as full of pride and hot-tempered. So remember, I, I, he's definitely one of those characters that you could kind of compare to Boromir. And it says that he was really good at fighting. So you have this guy come to the throne. And the Witch King, at this point, has recaptured Minas Ithil and changed its name to Minas Morgul. And that's where he has set up camp. Now, it says the Witch King would regularly taunt Ernor with these challenges to a duel. And Ernor, now you remember, he had this confrontation with the Witch King where the Witch King laughed at him. And Ernor was a man of great pride. So he really wanted to accept this duel from the Witch King. But his steward, now I haven't really explained the stewards yet, but to give a quick explanation, it's basically like a, a hand of the king, sort of a prime minister character, somebody representing the will of the aristocracy, a caretaker of the throne, someone who would help in the line of succession to make sure that the right person got the throne, like the steward had a hand in blocking Arvadui's claim to the throne. So... His steward kind of talks him out of not accepting the Witch King's challenge, right? And then a couple years go by, and the Witch King challenges him again. Aranor, remembering his bruised pride, he doesn't listen anymore. He decides to accept the challenge. So this king of Gondor rides off with a group of knights to duel the Witch King, 1v1. And it says that he rides off in the direction of Minas Morgul, and he is never seen again. So Gondor is left with a problem. There is no one left with a strong enough claim to the throne. And Ernor, he, he didn't have any children. He was more focused on fighting than he was of actually building a strong kingdom. So no heirs, wasn't married, rides off to go fight the Witch King, and never comes back. So now Gondor is left 
with no king, just a steward. And it's at this point that the stewards take up rule of Gondor because no one could find an heir with a strong enough bloodline, a strong enough claim to this to the Numenorean ancestry to earn himself a spot on the throne. And this is the situation that both the heirs of Isildur and Anarion find themselves by the time the Lord of the Rings story is told. And of course, the Stuarts were perfectly happy to rule in place of the kings because although they had zero claim to the throne and they couldn't convince anyone to make them the new kings of Gondor because they didn't have that strong bloodline that was needed in order to get it, they ruled like kings anyway and they didn't want to give up that power so what happens is the stewards are ruling and they essentially have the power of the king but don't have the claim of the king and this is a hereditary position that is passed down father to son and that takes place until we get to the book the fellowship of the ring now you may ask yourself okay yeah but the you know the heirs of a sealed door who have strong claim to the throne strong ancestors why didn't why didn't one of them you know one of the 15 chieftains come forward to try to claim the throne before Aragorn and that's simply because it wasn't that easy you know you had to show up with some legitimacy and that's one of the things that I feel like is such an underrated part of the Aragorn story is that you know if you just watch the movies or if you're just a casual fan it can be lost on you how difficult the task actually was for Aragorn to get the throne you know there were obstacles that he had to hurdle to be accepted as ruler by the people of the south if you remember, I mean, he's an heir to a sealed door. I mean, he's technically an heir to Anarion because if you remember, Arvadui did marry Furiel. He did marry that princess of Gondor. So technically, by you know, by that definition, he is an heir of Anarion. But that's that's not that's not like easy peasy. That still takes some convincing. You know, he actually has to show up with some legitimacy, which is the story that ha- it's it's you know one of the subplots. This conspiracy that Gandalf concocts to place Aragorn on the throne of Gondor is a plan that had many facets and wasn't just like a simple trick. You know, it wasn't as simple as Aragorn just showing up at Minas Tirith and saying, oh, I'm king now. You know, a lot of different things had to happen, including the removal of Denethor, because Denethor did not want to, as the ruling steward of Gondor, he has some say in who the crown would go to if an heir did emerge. And I'm going to read this quote just to highlight some of the boundaries that existed between Aragorn and the Gondorian throne, even though to us, it just logically makes sense. But culturally to Gondor, it wouldn't have made sense unless Aragorn really proved himself. I want to read this exchange that is kind of touched on in the movie, but it's between Gandalf and Denethor, where Denethor lets it slip that he knows what Gandalf's trying to do, and he's not going to let it happen. He says, Do I not know thee, Mithrandir? That's the name that the elves and uh, the Dunedain referred to Gandalf as. Thy hope is to rule in my stead to stand behind every throne, north, south, or west. I have read thy mind and its policies. Do I not know 
that you commanded this halfling, talking about uh, Pippin, here to keep silence, that you brought him hither to be a spy within my very chamber? And yet in our speech together, I have learned the names and purpose of all thy companions. So, with the left hand thou wouldst use me for a little while as a shield against Mordor, and with the right bring up this ranger of the north, talking about Aragorn, to supplant me. So he's like telling Gandalf right now, he's like, I got you. I know that you're trying to grab this random dude from the north to try and rule in my stead. But I say to thee, Gandalf Mithrandir, I will not be thy tool. I am steward of the house of Anarion. Remember, and this is a this is a good dig into like the cultural mindset of the people of Gondor. They see themselves as their proper ruler being of the house of Anarion, Elendil's second son. Aragorn is an heir of Isildur. So it's not that simple for Aragorn to become king. And I think that adds a lot of depth to this subplot of the Lord of the Rings story. And then Denethor uh, goes on to say, I will not step down to be the dotard, chamberlain of an upstart, even were his claim proved to me. Still he comes, but of the line of Isildur. I will not bow to such a one, last of a ragged house long bereft of lordship and dignity. So again, this is how somebody like Denethor would view Aragorn. It's like, oh, those those people who claim to be of the line of Isildur, they have no home, no kingdom. You're going to pluck one of them out to come rule over me? I don't think so. And I wanted to convey that here because that's... That's the mindset of a lot of the upper aristocracy of Gondor. You know, they might not just be so willing to accept this random guy from the north. Aragorn had to show up and prove himself with some legitimacy, which he does. He does. He shows up with leadership. He shows up with an army. You know, he shows up with a lot of these, a lot of the the men from the provinces in the southern areas of Gondor. He comes in in a very kingly way. And of course, the people of Gondor desperately needed a leader. So it all happened at the right time. It all coalesced at the right moment, and it was directed by Gandalf. And that's something that obviously is going to be lost on you if you're just a casual fan. It's 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 a hard thing to really dig into because there's so many characters and so much history behind it. So yeah, that's that's pretty much what I wanted to communicate today. I, I hope I did it well. If you have any questions about it or want to get deeper into it, you know, feel free to send me some. I love this aspect of Lord of the Rings. I didn't want to get too caught up in the North and the Angmar Wars because that's a whole podcast in and of itself. It's such a super fun time in the story to really dig in but yeah that about wraps up my breakdown thank you so much once again for listening i i really appreciate it